Continuation of Chapter 2, The Early Life of Christ The Name Jesus The name Jesus was a fairly common one among the Jews. In the original Hebrew, it was Josue. The angel told Joseph that Mary would bear a son whom thou shalt call Jesus, for he is to save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21 This first indication of the nature of his mission on earth does not mention his teaching, for the teaching would be ineffective unless there was first salvation. He was given another name at the same time, the name Emmanuel. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew 1.23 This name was taken from the prophecy of Isaiah, and it assured something besides a divine presence. Together with the name Jesus, it meant a divine presence which delivers and saves. The angel also told Mary, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call him Jesus. He shall be great, and men will know him for the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob eternally. His kingdom shall never have an end. Luke 1, 31-33 The title Son of the Most High was the very one that was given to the Redeemer by the evil spirit which possessed the youth in the land of the Gerasenes. The fallen angel thus confessed him to be what the unfallen angel said he was. Why dost thou meddle with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Mark 5, 7 The salvation that is promised by the name Jesus is not a social salvation, but rather a spiritual one. He would not save people necessarily from their poverty, but he would save them from their sins. To destroy sin is to uproot the first causes of poverty. The name Jesus brought back the memory of their great leader who had brought them out of Egypt to rest in the Promised Land. The fact that he was prefigured by Josue indicates that he had the soldierly qualities necessary for the final victory over evil, which would come from the glad acceptance of suffering, unwavering courage, resoluteness of will, and unshakable devotion to the Father's mandate. The people enslaved under the Roman yoke were seeking deliverance. Hence they felt that any prophetic fulfillment of the ancient Josue would have something to do with politics. Later on, the people would ask him when he was going to deliver them from the power of Caesar. But here, at the very beginning of his life, the divine soldier affirmed through an angel that he had come to conquer a greater enemy than Caesar. They must still render to Caesar the things that were Caesar's. His mission was to deliver them from a far greater bondage, namely that of sin. All through his life, people would continue to materialize the concept of salvation, thinking that deliverance was to be interpreted only in terms of the political. The name Jesus, or Savior, was not given to him after he had brought salvation, but at the very moment he was conceived in the womb of his mother. The foundation of his salvation was from eternity and not from time. Firstborn She brought forth a son, her firstborn, Luke 2, 7. The term firstborn did not mean that Our Lady was to bear other children according to the flesh. There was always a position of honor assigned in law to the firstborn, even if there were not any other children. It could very well be that Luke employs the term here in view of the account which he later on is to give of the Blessed Mother presenting her child in the temple as the firstborn son. The other brethren of our Lord mentioned by Luke were not sons of Mary. They were either half-brothers, sons of Joseph by a possible former marriage, or else his cousins. Mary had no other children in the flesh. But firstborn could mean Our Lady's relation to other children she would have according to the Spirit. In this sense, her divine son called John her son at the foot of the cross. Spiritually, John was her second son. 
St. Paul later on used the term firstborn in time to parallel our Lord's eternal generation as the only begotten of the Father. It was only to his divine Son that God said, Thou art my Son, I have begotten thee this day, and again he shall find in me a Father, and I in him a Son. Why, when the time comes for bringing his firstborn into the world anew, then he says, Let all the angels of God worship before him. Hebrews 1, 5 and 6. Christ's Family Tree Though his divine nature was from eternity, his human nature had a Jewish background. The blood that flowed in his veins was from the royal house of David, through his mother who, though poor, belonged to the lineage of the great king. His contemporaries called him the son of David. The people would never have consented to regard as a Messiah any pretender who did not fulfill this indispensable condition. Nor did our blessed Lord himself ever deny his Davidic origin. He only affirmed that his Davidic affiliation did not explain the relations which he possessed with the Father in his divine personality. The opening words of the Gospel of Matthew suggest the genesis of our Lord. The Old Testament begins with the genesis of heaven and earth through God making all things. The New Testament had another kind of genesis, in the sense that it describes the making of all things new. The genealogy that is given implies that Christ was a second man, and not merely one of the many that had sprung from Adam. Luke, who directed his gospel to the Gentiles, traced our Lord's descent back to the first man, but Matthew, who directed his gospel to the Jews, set him forth as son of David and the son of Abraham. The difference in the genealogy between Luke and Matthew is due to the fact that Luke, writing for the Gentiles, was careful to give a natural descent, while Matthew, writing for the Jews, verged from the natural after the time of David in order to make it clear to the Jews that our Lord was the heir to the kingdom of David. Luke is concerned about the Son of Man, Matthew about the King of Israel. Hence, Matthew opens his gospel, a record of the ancestry from which Jesus Christ, the Son of David, Son of Abraham, was born. Matthew 1, 1. Matthew pictures the generations from Abraham to our Lord as having passed through three cycles of fourteen each. This does not, however, represent a complete genealogy. Fourteen are mentioned from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the Babylonian captivity, and fourteen from the Babylonian captivity to our blessed Lord. The genealogy goes beyond the Hebrew background to include a few non-Jews. There may have been a very good reason for this, as well as for the inclusion of others who had not the best reputations in the world. One was Rahab, who was a foreigner and a sinner. Another was Ruth, a foreigner, though received into the nation. A third was the sinner Bathsheba, whose sin with David cast shame upon the royal line. Why should there be blots on the royal escutcheon, such as Bathsheba, whose womanly purity was tainted? and Ruth, who, though morally good, was an introducer of alien blood into the stream. Possibly it was in order to indicate Christ's relationship to the stained and to the sinful, to harlots and sinners, and even to the Gentiles who were included in his message and redemption. In some translations of Scripture, the word that is used to describe the genealogy is the word begot. For example, Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob. In other translations there is the expression, was the father of, for example, Jeconias was the father of Salatiel. The translation is unimportant. What stands out is that this monotonous expression is used throughout 41 generations, but it is omitted when the 42nd generation is reached. Why? Because of the virgin birth of Jesus. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. It was of her that Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Matthew 1.16 Matthew, drawing up the genealogy, knew that our Lord was not the son of Joseph, Hence, on the very first pages of the Gospel, our Lord is presented as connected with the race which nevertheless did not wholly produce him. That he came into it was obvious, yet he was distinct from it. 
If there was a suggestion of the virgin birth in the genealogy of Matthew, so there was a suggestion of it in the genealogy of Luke. In Matthew, Joseph is not described as having begotten our Lord, and in Luke our Lord is called, by repute, the son of Joseph. Luke 3.23 He meant that our Lord was popularly supposed to be the son of Joseph. Combining the two genealogies, in Matthew our Lord is the son of David and of Abraham. He is, in Luke, the son of Adam and the seed of the woman God promised would crush the head of the serpent. Men who are not moral, by God's providence, are made the instruments of his policy. David, who murdered Uriah, nevertheless is the channel through which the blood of Abraham flows into the blood of Mary. There were sinners in the family tree, and he would seem to be the greatest sinner of all when he would hang upon the family tree of the cross, making men adopted sons of the Heavenly Father. Circumcision When eight days had passed and the boy must be circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name which the angel had given him before ever he was conceived in the womb. Luke 2, 21. Circumcision was the symbol of the covenant between God and Abraham and his seed, and took place on the eighth day. The circumcision presumed that the person circumcised was a sinner. The babe was now taking the sinner's place, something he was to do all through his life. Circumcision was a sign and token of membership in the body of Israel. Mere human birth did not bring a child into the body of God's chosen people. Another rite was required, as recorded in the book of Genesis. Then God said to Abraham, Thou too shalt observe this covenant of mine, thou and the race that shall follow thee, generation after generation. This is the covenant you shall keep with me, thou and thine. Every male child of yours shall be circumcised. Genesis 17, 9. Circumcision in the Old Testament was a prefiguring of baptism in the New Testament. Both symbolize a renunciation of the flesh with its sins. The first was done by wounding of the body, the second by cleansing the soul. The first incorporated the child into the body of Israel. The second incorporates the child into the body of the new Israel, or the church. The term circumcision was later used in the scriptures to reveal the spiritual significance of applying the cross to the flesh through self-discipline. Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, clearly spoke of circumcising the heart. Jeremiah also used the same expression. St. Stephen, in his last address before being killed, told his hearers that they were uncircumcised in heart and ears. By submitting to this rite, which he need not have done because he was sinless, the Son of God made man satisfied the demands of his nation, just as he was to keep all the other Hebrew regulations. He kept the Passover, he observed the Sabbath, he went up to the feasts, he obeyed the old law until the time came for him to fulfill it by realizing and spiritualizing its shadowy prefigurements of God's dispensation. In the circumcision of the divine child, there was a dim suggestion and hint of Calvary in the precocious surrendering of blood. The shadow of the cross was already hanging over a child eight days old. He would have seven bloodsheddings of which this was the first, the others being the agony in the garden, the scourging, the crowning with thorns, the way of the cross, the crucifixion, and the piercing of his heart. But whenever there was an indication of Calvary, there was also some sign of glory, and it was at this moment when he was anticipating Calvary by shedding his blood that the name of Jesus was bestowed on him. A child only eight days old was already beginning the bloodshedding that would fulfill his perfect manhood. The cradle was tinged with crimson, a token of Calvary. The precious blood was beginning its long pilgrimage. Within an octave of his birth, Christ obeyed a law of which he himself was the author, a law which was to find its last application in him. There had been sin in human blood, and now blood was already being poured out to do away with sin. As the east catches at sunset the colors of the west, so does the circumcision reflect Calvary. Must he begin redeeming all at once? Cannot the cross wait? There will be plenty of time for it. 
Coming straight from the father's arms to the arms of his earthly mother, he is carried in her arms to his first Calvary. Many years later, he will be taken from her arms again, after the bruising of the flesh on the cross, when the father's work is done.